0: it's good to be here it's so cal cold today we've got 53 (laughs) degrees and uh looking towards some sunshine on the weekend so today i'm going to talk about uh, the first path factor and the reason i'm going to talk about that is because i've been invited to go to a vietnamese temple in garden grove for the next few months and what they asked me to do was talk about buddhism to their young people to their children the thing is that their children are in school and they are becoming americans they are being inculturated, in- and so they wanted an american monk to speak about buddhism so the young people will realize that buddhism is alive and well in america So after being born in Iowa and ordained in Los Angeles, I suppose I qualify. And I thought to myself, well, what am I gonna talk about, you know, for the next few months? How am I gonna get them involved in Buddhism and and try and make it interesting? And so what I came up with was something really simple, Uh, the Four Noble Truths, which seems to be a great place to start and that allows everybody then to get on board with Buddhism and the importance of uh, practice. Okay, so there is a booklet by a Buddhist monk named Bhikkhu Bodhi. And Bhikkhu Bodhi's booklet is 126 pages or something like that, uh, published by the Buddhist Publication Society in Sri Lanka. And if you follow me on Facebook, you can find a link to download the PDF. So it's a a free PDF to be downloaded. So I went and remembered what the Four Noble Truths are. And the first truth is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. It's never the way it's supposed to be. It's never the way you want it to be. It's never the way it could be. And yet we still go every day hoping for something better or hoping for something different. And it never seems to materialize. So that would be the first truth that the historical Buddha found on his enlightenment day. The second truth was why we suffer. So if life's unsatisfactory, there must be a reason. And the reason is we have craving attachment desire something that can't be ever satisfied we also have aversion now i find as i get older i have less attachment and more aversion but i suppose that's probably part of the aging process do you want to go out and have some fun no i don't know what fun is anymore Do you want to be around a thousand people? No, I don't think so. Do you want to just sit in your room alone? Yeah, that sounds good. You know, so as we get older, our desires change, our attachments change, and our aversions change as well. Then he continued, and he said, I have found the answer to suffering. I figured it out. I rediscovered it. Now, the reason I say rediscovered is because according to some forms of Buddhism, there were 27 Buddhas before this one, Siddhartha Gotama, Shakyamuni Buddha. There were 27 before. And when the last Buddha died and the last person that remembered that teachings of that Buddha died, the Dharma had been lost to the world. And we had to wait for the birth of Siddhartha, who had been a Bodhisattva many lifetimes before and then finally born, and then finally went out to seek the answer to suffering, and then finally found the answer, and he started the wheel of dharma turning again. So what is the path to the end of suffering, nirvana? The path is the Noble Eightfold Path right view right intention right speech right action right livelihood right effort right mindfulness and right concentration those eight path factors will allow us to realize nirvana and i say realize nirvana is because the potential is already there each one of us has the seed of nirvana already implanted in our consciousness but what we need to do is water it and fertilize it and groom it and 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 let it take root and let it grow so we don't need to go to india or thailand or nepal we can simply be where we are and practice buddhism and we will have that realization eventually it may take a few lifetimes but you know during those lifetimes you get really good at practice and it might become easier and easier as, as time goes on. So I'm gonna talk about the first path factor called right view. And the irony of the first path factor is that that's where we start and that's what we end up with. So we start by trying to understand what the f- first path factor is. And then as we go through all the other seven truths, the seven path factors, when we achieve our nirvana our enlightenment our liberation we now have in permanent place right view we now see the world exactly the way it is so in bhikkhu bodhi's booklet on the eightfold path he says right view consists of two things he says it consists of number one karma the right view of karma and then the right view of the Noble Eightfold Path. So let's start with karma. Let's see what right view of karma really means. Karma is taking the place of a divine lawgiver for Buddhists. We do not have someone who decides for us what is right and what is wrong and what is the penalty. We we lack that in Buddhism rather we have karma cause and consequence so we start to investigate what produces karma in a human being we have three ways of producing karma number one thinking thinking is the first way we produce karma now the consequence of thinking is the least of the consequences in the other two ways. So, you can think good thoughts, or you can think bad thoughts, or you can be unskillful, or you can be skillful. But the consequences of all those thoughts are fairly minute. They don't add up to much at all. Ah, but now we come to speech karma. The consequences of speech karma are are greatly increased. So, we need to be careful about what we say no harsh speech malicious speech gossip or idle chatter or false speech those kinds of speech create unskillful negative karma and the consequences will come back and bite us and the third way a human creates karma is through physical action and that has the greatest consequence of all now If you think about karma like gravity, you realize that if you're walking around and all of a sudden trip and fall, gravity could care less. You could curse gravity. You could say, why did you do this to me? And gravity has no response karma is the same way karma is a natural law of cause and consequence for human beings and if you're unskillful and petition karma to give you a break to forgive you for what you've thought said or done karma has no ears to hear that And now you might say, well, I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray to karma to forgive me because I have consequences to manifest in my life. Karma has no eyes. Karma can't see you on your knees praying. So we have a certain amount of responsibility with karma that we are in charge of having a better life or a more difficult life. Now you might say, well, how long does it take for the consequences to manifest? So if I say something really unskillful, will there be an immediate response, an immediate consequence, or will it happen in a week or months or a year or a lifetime? Well, see, we don't know. Karma isn't that specific that we generally speaking do not have instant consequence for our thinking, speaking or acting. There seems to be a time delay when it comes to karma and consequence. And that gives us a chance to rectify the problem. Okay, so here we are and we've said something really bad or unskillful to somebody and you know it's gonna come back and haunt you. And then you say to yourself, well, maybe I can use karma in a positive way, maybe I can say some pleasant things to the person I said that was that I said before were in an unpleasant way. And maybe that will soften the consequence of what I said so unskillfully or maybe I can be befriend that person and and we can go out and have a couple beers together and talk about stuff and maybe that will then get rid of all the consequences of my unskillful speech. So we have ways of dealing with the consequence, but it takes us and puts us in a proactive position that now we need to go out and do something to change the consequence of that unskillful karma. Okay, so you might say to yourself, well, why are humans so unskillful? What's their problem? Why don't they get it together? And the deal is, we are saddled with greed, hatred, and delusion. Those drive us through our life. Those drive us every day. And oftentimes, the greed and the hatred and delusion create this unskillful karma that we're producing. So we really need to work on that. And one of the ways we can work on that is to use the opposite to neutralize the greed, hatred and delusion. So, for instance, what is the opposite of greed? Generosity. What is the opposite of hatred and anger, loving kindness and compassion? What is the opposite of ignorance, wisdom and clarity? And we can practice increasing our generosity, increasing our kindness, and increasing our wisdom. Wisdom by studying the Dharma, hatred and anger by being kinder, greed by practicing generosity. Now, in a book by Ramdas, Ramdas said, give yourself an allowance give yourself a generosity allowance. So put in other terms, we could say, Okay, I'm going to give myself $5 a week to be generous with. And I'm going to carry those $5 with me. And if somebody says, Hey, man, do you got any extra money? And I could say, Hey, here's a dollar. Okay, or maybe two. And then as I go through the week, I give the $5 away. And then I don't give anything else away because that's my allowance for generosity. Okay, so the next week comes another $5. And off I go into the world to practice generosity. Now, one of the ways I started to practice generosity was leaving coins behind in a vending machine. So it might cost $1.25. I put $2 in 75 cents would go into the little coin holder and I just leave it there. And I don't know if you're like me, but if you go to a vending machine and find a quarter in the coin slot, you know, it's your day. It almost inspires you to go out and get a lottery ticket because you found a quarter. Now, how often can you change somebody's life with a quarter? I ask you. Never, (laughs) unless you leave it behind in the coin slot. So that's how I started practicing generosity, because I didn't have a lot of money and still don't. But a quarter here or a dollar there, oftentimes it's doable. Now, say you don't want to give money because you're concerned about how they're going to spend the money and you want to attach a lot of specifics to that. I'll give you this dollar but you can't do this with it and you can't do that with it. Well, that sort of defeats the purpose of generosity. So sometimes you can spend your time rather than your money. So say somebody comes up to you and says, you know what happened to me yesterday? And normally you might say, I could care less, but now you're practicing generosity. So you sit down and spend some time listening to what happened to him or her yesterday. What a great way to spend a few minutes because it's gonna make that person feel so much better and realize that somebody actually cares or seems to care. And as we go through this practice of generosity of time, you'll find that the caring does increase and you become fascinated by all the stories that people have. Everybody has a story, some have 10. And you sit there and listen and you go, yeah, okay. And then you might wanna share a story with somebody that, that you don't know. And maybe they're practicing generosity of time as well. And they'll sit down and listen to you. Yesterday, when I went to Leisure World in Seal Beach, California, I gave my talk. And after my talk, a woman of Asian descent comes up to me. And she's gonna share something with me because I spoke about taking probiotics. I spoke about taking CoQ10. I spoke about taking my multivitamins every day and how much better I felt and how much more energy I have. And she said, you know, you know, I found something that really works well on digestion and I take it every day. And it's, so I'm listening to her and I'm thinking to myself, this is gonna be good. She's gonna have some really, some Asian ancient wisdom she's gonna share with me. And I can go out now and buy those plants or whatever she's gonna suggest and feel even better. And so I had to ask, I said, well, now, what did you find? What do you use? What is your secret? She said, I eat sauerkraut. Like, ah, I would have never guessed. Thank you for sharing that with me. So everybody has something they wanna say and we can take the time to listen and appreciate the diversity and of life and being a human being. So now another aspect of karma that's really important is that it's the only thing we get to take with us to the next lifetime karma travels with us lifetime to lifetime to lifetime so our job in a way is to create as much merit and good karma in this lifetime to assure us a better life next time and so it's sort of like having a karma account and you can withdraw your karma or you could deposit your karma and at the end of your life you'll have this Merit account, this karma account, and you'll be able to feel comfortable in letting go of this lifetime because the next lifetime is going to be even better. Maybe, maybe with a lot of good karma, you'll be born in Malibu. How lucky will that be? And you can go surfing every day. But it requires us to really think about our job in this lifetime is to produce good quality karma now when i talk about rebirth i'm not talking about reincarnation a lot of people get this confused so reincarnation requires that person to have a soul that then migrates to the next vessel and the next vessel and the next vessel until ultimately all the lessons have been learned and that soul merges with the great soul the mothership okay the buddha didn't really get into that because he said you know the problem with having a soul is that it's fixed and unchanging and independent and in all the time i've been practicing the dharma and experimenting in my meditation, I have never found anything that stands apart or alone that doesn't change. What I have come to understand is that being a human being is very much a process, not an event. Now, I know you probably have people in your life that feel that their life is an event, and that's okay. Let them have their event. But you know what? This process is our ticket to freedom, because we're always changing and becoming different and with the possibility of becoming better. So if you never changed, you wouldn't get any worse, but you wouldn't get any better either. So this process we go through as a human being has no beginning. The Buddha said there was no first cause which to me is really interesting because everybody wants to know how it started and they've got the big bang theory and you have the God theory and you have this theory and you have that theory and of course we'll never know for sure. But the Buddha said, no, there there really isn't any beginning and there really isn't any end. But I found the end of suffering and the end of suffering is Nirvana. And when you achieve nirvana, you end your suffering, you end your karma, and you end all future rebirths. Because what migrates lifetime to lifetime? It's your karma. And if you end your karma, you can no longer migrate from lifetime to lifetime. And what's the problem with that? The problem with migrating lifetime to lifetime is birth. Because birth leads to sickness birth leads to old age, and birth leads to death. Every time! How many infinite times have we done this already? Been born, gotten old, gotten sick, gotten disgusted, and then we die to be born again and again. So the Buddha said, you know, I found a way to end our suffering, but end all future rebirths so you'll never have to be born again. I teach the path of how not to be born, not how not to die." I thought, man, why didn't I think of that? So here we are, we're working hard, we got the right view, and now we go into the right view of the Four Noble Truths. Okay, and this is what I got from the booklet by Bhikkhu Bodhi. There's two ways of looking at the Eightfold Path. One is a practical, way using our intellect to understand and dissect each path factor and one is an intuitive way that only comes through the experience of the eightfold path not through the intellectual understanding of the eightfold path but we start with the intellect because that's where we start that's why we went to school That's why we have student loan problems, because we have this wonderful intellect that allows us to understand, to understand stuff, okay? But we have this wonderful intuition as well, which is atrophied over time because we rely so heavily on our intellect and understanding. So I found with the process of meditation, that that invigorated my intuition. It allowed me to exercise my intuition in a way that I couldn't do through understanding. So I break it down in this way. The intellect is understanding and the intuition is knowing. I know this, I know this to be true, you might say. Well, can you explain it? No. I can't explain it. Well, how do you know it's true? Because I know it's true. And and that only gets you so far. Because after a few sentences like that, people just walk away. But the idea with the intuition is to go into a direct experience of something without having to overlay it with a bunch of concepts and thoughts and ideas just simply having that direct experience so in in some forms of buddhism mahayana in particular what they say is the way to gain both kinds of wisdom through knowing and understanding is like understanding it with the heart and the mind so the heart is the intuition and the mind is the intellect and if we can view the eightfold path if we can understand the Eightfold Path, if we can experience the Eightfold Path, we are then able to realize the ultimate goal of Buddhism, which is the end of suffering. And the Eightfold Path is our way, but word of caution. It's not linear. You don't go one, two, three, four, five. It unfortunately doesn't work that way intellectually it does but heart wise intuition it doesn't all those path factors are working together together which allows us to be liberated but we start with well what's path factor number one and what's path factor number two and how can i practice that and once i get good at path factor number two I'm going to practice path factor number three. And that's how most people would approach it. That's why we need to have a strong meditation practice connected to our intellectual process in order to balance it out between mind and heart. And, and that's, that's really the challenge. So we need this practice of meditation and in the eight path factors, we'll find three of the path factors deal specifically with meditation. And when we get there, I can go into greater detail. So that's what I found to be interesting about the first path factor of right view right view of karma, right view of the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, understanding those intellectually and intuitively.